It is Tuesday, January 16th, 2024, and this is Ozarks at Large. I'm Kyle Kellams. I'm Matthew Moore. Today, what does a billion dollars in proposed investments look like? The So Falcon Jet, you know, having their event in December saying we're investing $100 million uh, in the investment there with, with six hour, those that were that were kind of out in the news publicly, that was just over a billion. Plus, Theater Squared, beyond the stage. Part of the philosophy and ethos of why we created this space is not just to be a theater, but really to be a community space. And NPR science reporter Nell Greenfield-Boyce reflects on the relationship between science and life. Young children haven't really learned how to do that yet. They're much more open to the universe and much more um, fearless and kind of raw. And I, I think in a lot of ways, they're very scientific. First, though, a roundup of the hour's news from NPR. Walton Arts Center's 10 by 10 Arts Series presents the Galvin Cello Quartet, January 30th at 7 p.m. With members from China, Brazil, South Korea, and the U.S., this diverse ensemble presents a program featuring works by Stravinsky, Vivaldi, Rossini, Gershwin, and others, illustrating the connections that form when cultures are integrated through musical harmony. Tickets at waltonartscenter.org. Good Tuesday. This is Ozarks at Large for January 16th, 2024. I'm Matthew Moore. Ozarks at Large is a production. KUAF Public Radio, a listener-supported service of the University of Arkansas. Later on our show, a conversation about curiosity and examining the ideas of science through the eyes of kids. NPR science correspondent Nell Greenfield-Boyce discusses her new book, Transient and Strange, later on our show. First, though, Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders ended 2023 with a graphic online touting the growth and successes of her first year in office. One of those numbers included more than a billion dollars in proposed investment. I spoke to Clint O'Neill last week over Zoom to get into greater detail about what this investment means for the state of Arkansas. He serves as the executive director for the Arkansas Economic Development Commission, and he says they use two specific metrics to determine the success of a year's proposed investments. We track it by announced projects, and then we track it by signed incentive agreements. Uh, I, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but if you look at the announced projects, so the ones that went public, uh, like Dassault Falcon Jet, you know, having their event in December saying we're investing $100 million. Uh, I think the largest one of the year was with West Rock Coffee uh, and the investment there with, with Six Hour. Those that were that were kind of out in the news publicly, that was just over a billion. But then if you look at the signed incentive agreements, those are ones that, you know, some of them were announced in 2022 and we signed the agreement in 2023. Uh, some we announced in 2023, but probably won't sign the agreement until 2024. And then some are more uh, some small expansions, some some uh, small business programs, and they all don't make a, a press release or, or make a splash. So the, the total there of the signed incentive agreements is around $2 billion. And that's really how we've more uh, been in a pattern of, of keeping score at AEDC. So I think if you look at the last three years, there was one year that was higher uh, because of the U.S. Steel announcement in January of 2022. That's the largest economic development announcement project by capital investment in the state's history at, at $3 billion alone. But 
last year, 2023, was definitely about 20% higher than the average of the last three years and was higher than, than any year with the exception of that one in 2022. We'll have a, a breakdown of the companies who have made the announcements and the proposed investments uh, on our website. Um, but as I looked through that list, uh, there were a couple of things that really kind of stuck out to me. And I, I let's kind of focus on some of those. The first one is that nine different counties are listed as places for investment where these uh, companies will be making investments including some that are not Pulaski County, Washington County, Benton County. That seems pretty significant. Absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, in economic development, to us, working with a lot of companies that are doing multi-state location analysis, you know, we we would never uh, say, hey, you ought to go here instead of here within Arkansas. Uh, we're champions for Arkansas. Sometimes it comes down to where the real estate is available or sometimes it comes down to where they have a supplier or a customer relationship or some sort of supply chain needs. It's great to win a project everywhere. You know, the projects in, in central and northwest Arkansas provide good jobs and, and Arkansans are, are known for, for, you know, driving far distances for a good job. But anytime that we can land a project in a more rural community, it's so much more special. It, it means a lot to those communities. So yeah, looking, looking forward to, uh, to, to more of those. So eight of these investments that we've seen are new to the state of Arkansas. Can you walk us a little bit through what the process looks like to bring in outside investment into the state? Yeah, I'd say it starts with marketing. It starts with elevating the image of what it's like to live and do business in Arkansas. I think whether it be a domestic project or an international project, you have a small percentage of the population that are on one end of the other. You know, some would say I have a very favorable impression of Arkansas. I know that Arkansas businesses have been successful there. I know that the world's largest company is headquartered there, or I went on vacation there and I had a wonderful experience. Uh, some might say I've heard less than favorable things about Arkansas. You know, those people are wrong, but they're they're out there. And then you have so many people that are in the middle that give us a, a fair shake. I would say in terms of the business climate in the United States, generally the central part of the country and what I would call SEC territory, mostly in the Southeast, has a fairly favorable reputation for business. So if a, if a company is looking around hey, we need some capacity to manufacture a product or, or we need a place to, to put in an, an office for our technology business. I think the, the SEC territory has generally favorable outlook. So we work hard to get on the radar screen of site selection consultants and company executives so that when they have a project, they give us an opportunity. You know, it's a real milestone for us. I always say my favorite project is the next one. You know, love those opportunities to compete for projects. So when we get a request for information, a lot of times those companies are looking for that first impression of Arkansas with their specific project in four major categories, real estate, workforce, business cost, and then just the overall customer service. Is this a community? Is this a state that really wants us to be here? Are they going to help us? Are they going to be an advocate for our business? Or are they going to be one of those states that have more heavy-handed government regulation, kind of see themselves as more of a regulatory state agency, more than a proactive champion for business? You know, number one on that list is really going to come down to workforce. Am I going to be able to find the people 
that have the skills that can do the, the job. Uh, however, a lot of times the the first threshold is really more on the real estate side because if you don't have a 200 acre rail surf side or a hundred thousand square foot existing uh, vacant industrial building, then it's not worth exploring that. And so a lot of times that real estate component is is the first one. Certainly business cost is always important. That's everything from taxes to utility costs to uh, the, the cost of labor or the cost uh, across the board, everything that factors in with some offsets by economic development incentives. And so if we can put together a compelling case for Arkansas, you get to that next step, which is a site visit from then on. Uh, you're just looking to, uh, to you know, survive the round of cuts and be the one left that they say this is the best place to do business. Well, that, that ties in, I think, really well into my next question here. Uh, we've seen at least 11 of these companies who have made proposed investments are manufacturing-based companies. Um, is, is, is a lot of that because of the workforce in Arkansas? And what sort of impact does that have on, um, you know, a state's workforce who, you know, relatively speaking, pretty low unemployment. Um, but is that a specific kind of workforce that, say, other states may not be able to offer? In some cases, definitely. Yeah. You know, when it comes to manufacturing, you have so many advanced manufacturing companies. So West Rock Coffee, for example, they announced publicly that their average wage would be around 70000 So you've got hundreds and hundreds of jobs that are good paying jobs for the the steel industry, for example. You know, we had a, a public announcement there with Big River Steel and U.S. Steel. And and, and these companies report wages that, that are oftentimes in the six figures. And so these are these are good jobs. These are highly skilled individuals. Uh, a lot of times it requires a great degree of, of automation and technology. And so, you know, the difference between a manufacturing job and a job in the technology sector is not as far apart as it once was. And so when it comes to Arkansas, we really have a skill base of those in the aerospace and defense industry. Uh, companies like Lockheed Martin and Aerojet Rocketdyne and R2S, the Raytheon Raphael joint venture, they recognize that. Companies like Dassault Falcon Jet, they recognize that. They, they could have done that project in other places, but they have workforce in Arkansas that gets the job done. It kind of makes them say, OK, we have the confidence to, to hire more people like you. And so I think that rings true, whether it be some of those target industries like the steel industry, like timber and forestry products. Uh, you've got really good workforce development institutions around the state. The University of Arkansas at Monticello has a great program training those in the timber and forestry products industry. Food and beverage, firearms and ammunition, distribution and logistics, supply chain activity around Northwest Arkansas and the graduates that the University of Arkansas is producing. Arkansas has a diverse economy and that helps us, but some very concentrated uh, kind of niche programs that uh, that go hand in hand with the graduates that uh, are being produced and the success that we're finding in economic development. Finally here, these proposed investments are very exciting, but it's also important to examine the current status of the economy in Arkansas as well. You know, we've seen statistics from places like U.S. News and World Report that ranks Arkansas 35th in the nation when it comes to the economy, 40th in infrastructure, and 47th in healthcare. How do you see this investment helping to elevate those rankings um, for some pretty concerningly low numbers? 
Yeah, it's it's really interesting. These ranking agencies, uh, methodologies all across the board. You know, we we could quote quite a few rankings that are favorable to us. Came out uh, last week with rankings of their by region by region. Arkansas was number one in the South Central region. United Van Lines came out with their rankings of of inbound movers. Arkansas was fourth in the country there. You know, especially when you have ranking agencies that have a mix of objective and subjective measures. Uh, Arkansas comes out number number one or in the top 10 in a lot of these. And unfortunately, we come out being ranked low in, in some of these. I think it's more of a matter of, of looking at the real companies that are finding success and asking them. So, you know, one thing that we do with our marketing is, is uh, rather than going too deep into these ranking agencies that, that have methodologies across the board. We do more of a executive voice of, of interviewing executives that are finding success in Arkansas and asking them, why Arkansas? What's so special about Arkansas? So, you know, we, we've done these type of interviews with, with leaders of Hytrol and with Dassault Falcon Jet and with uh, West Rock Coffee and with Dillard's and, and others. You know, I think the, 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 the numbers speak for themselves when it comes to companies putting their confidence in Arkansas, uh, the numbers that we have about, I think there was one that came out in the last few weeks about Arkansas being the second most favorable state to, to start a business. So success when it comes to entrepreneurship. Uh, we'll continue to look at economic development in those three areas of job growth, entrepreneurship and small business, existing businesses and their growth, and then recruiting new ones to the state. And so we, we've had some success in 2023 in all three of those categories. Uh, look forward to seeing continued success in those. And I think that uh, we're, we're setting the stage with good public policy. You take a look at the tax cuts over the years that have taken us down to now 4.4% individual income tax rate, 4.8% on the corporate income tax side. I think with favorable public policy and, and with, with the right you know, workforce strategy and, and the things that we're doing, I'm confident that we'll see continued success. Clint O'Neill is the executive director for the Arkansas Economic Development Commission. We spoke last week over Zoom. If you'd like to see a list of the announced projects from 2023, as well as learn more about the methodology of how U.S. News & World Report determines their state rankings, you can do that at our website, ozarksatlarge.com. Ahead on our show... What if that curiosity of how things work from childhood just stays with us? People actually don't really give that up. Like maybe their daily life, you know, doesn't give them the chance to muck around in the woods the way they used to when they were young. But, you know, people like to learn about the natural world. Nell Greenfield Boyce is a science correspondent for NPR and the author of Transient and Strange Notes on the Science of Life. Out today. We'll hear more of that conversation in less than five minutes on today's Ozarks at Large. KUAF's Daily Word Game is a five-letter puzzle available to play right now, as in T-O-D-A-Y. Ugh. Okay. You might get the word if you listen to the Ozarks at Large A-U-D-I-O. Okay, okay. Maybe it's because I forgot to remind you that you can play the game at kuaf.com or by subscribing to the Ozarks at Large newsletter that shows up in your email, I-N-B-O-X.
Well, maybe you'll have better luck than me. Go try your luck today. Former Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson is ending his run for President of the United States. Hutchinson finished in sixth place in last night's Iowa caucuses, receiving fewer than 200 total votes, about two-tenths of one percent of all votes cast. In a press release this morning, Hutchinson says his message of being a principled Republican with experience and telling the truth about the current frontrunner did not sell in Iowa. XNA customers will again be able to fly nonstop from Northwest Arkansas National Airport to LaGuardia in New York City on Delta Airlines. XNA announced the flights will resume in April. Delta will fly direct from XNA to LaGuardia every day but Saturdays. And the Ozark Mountain Daredevils are touring one final time in 2024 and 25. The band formed in the early 70s and was most widely known for the radio hits If You Want to Get to Heaven and Jackie Blue. The band's first two records were produced by Glenn Johns, who also produced for a couple of British up-and-coming bands like the Rolling Stones, Led Zeppelin, and the Beatles. The band says they're immensely grateful for all the love and unwavering support they've received for more than 50 years, and this farewell tour is their way of saying thank you. This is... Ozarks at Large. This is Ozarks at Large. I'm Kyle Kellams. Nell Greenfield Boyce covers science for NPR. From the latest in AI to the most recent developments at NASA to geological phenomena, she explores how science and society interact. Her new book, available today, does the same. In Transient and Strange, Notes on the Science of Life, Greenfield Boyce shares essays that connect the personal and the scientific. Last week, I talked with her by Zoom about the book and asked her about her beat and the curiosity that's required for covering science. Yeah, and I think a lot of people get interested in the natural world when they're kids, and people actually don't really give that up. Like, maybe their daily life, you know, doesn't give them the chance to muck around in the woods the way they used to when they were young. But, you know, people like to learn about the natural world. And to me, it's just such a... um you know, it's a it's it's interesting for its own sake, but also thinking about science and the history of science is often um, metaphorically useful when it comes to thinking about you know things in our own lives and putting big things in perspective. I mean, there's nothing really that put things in perspective like a you know you know like a black hole or a galaxy or something. Well, yes, and that can be exciting, but it can also be intimidating or humbling if you think about a black hole or a tornado that's on the sun that's you know the size of earth those are that those are things that can keep you up at 3 a.m it's true and one of the essays i write about um how my young son developed this real phobia of tornadoes and how i had to sort of help him work through that and you know as part of that i i wrote a lot about the history of tornado science which to me is pretty fascinating i mean there's such you know bizarre strange phenomena and people have been trying to understand them for a long time and they're so um 
metaphorically evocative too. the way that they're just, you know, this kind of threat of random total destruction, you know, through winds. It's very biblical almost. But I think that even though there is a sort of like sense of smallness that you can get while thinking about the universe, I think that also, you know, we're we're right there in it. <laughs> we're also pretty darn magical and strange to think about, you know, just as complicated and as exciting as a black hole. And I think that, you know, one of the things I enjoyed so much in writing this book is um, getting to write about some of the sort of more personal parts of life and how they kind of intersect with the stuff that I report on all the time. Yes. And of course, science will will do that. I love the essay when your son is talking about the tornadoes and he's pushing back that, yeah, there could be a tornado in Washington, D.C. And I'm wondering, in those moments when you're comforting him about something that can be pretty scary, do you think back to your own childhood curiosity and what might have, you know, propelled your interest or or concerned you at his age? I think that most parents, you know, sort of have to revisit their childhoods to a certain extent um, when they have kids, except for weirdly, now you're in the role of parents, you know, and and you're acutely aware that, you know, adults don't really know much about what's going on. And you suddenly realize, like, some of the big questions of life, the kind of questions that kids will just, like, look at straight on and tackle kind of fearlessly are ones that maybe you've gotten distracted from or you've been able to avoid or ignore. I mean, you know, the threat of just random, you know, bad luck, obliteration, you know, it it affects all of us. Like all of us are just a heartbeat away um, from, you know, our lives changing abruptly. And yet we somehow have to go through our days and live as if this isn't possible. We sort of, you know, somehow have to do that. And young children haven't really learned how to do that yet. They're much more open to the universe and much more um, fearless and kind of raw. And I, I think in a lot of ways, they're very scientific. And, you know, a, a, one of the joys of having kids is watching them investigate the world. And I think that the investigations they do are not dissimilar to what scientists do or what poets do or artists. It's all just trying to make sense of things. As you continue through life, which is a euphemism for saying as you get older, does your relationship, do you think, with science and, and science investigation change? Well, I, you know, thought at one time that I would be a scientist. And that's, you know, sort of when I was a kid, I definitely thought I was headed in that direction. But at a certain point, I realized I was more interested in the history and philosophy of science and science as a human process. Um, so definitely, as I've gotten older, my views have shifted. And my interest in science is more... Um, it's more and more philosophical, I would I would have to say. And, you know, I think a lot of the, the themes of this book, um, you know, transient and strange deal with things that are ephemeral and um, difficult to understand and, you know, just trying to, to make sense of meaning in a universe that can be pretty meaningless. It's, it's a very human activity, whether scientists are doing it or whether kids are doing it or whether, you know, you at, at any age are doing it. And it's an investigation into some answers, but also having to know that there are some answers that will not come your way before your time is done. For sure. And science definitely doesn't have all the answers. But I do think that, you know, you can learn a lot about the world. And I, I hope that one thing, if anyone reads this book, they'll come away with some, you know, new 
insights into some of these sort of unusual phenomenon, you know, whether they're tornadoes or black holes or, you know, there's a whole essay on fleas and um, fleas as a sort of, you know, metaphorical uh, power to look at all these different things in science and in literature and, and romance. And um, I, I think that, like, studying the natural world in whatever form, whether the very big or the very small, is is very rewarding in, in that it sort of makes you think about your place in the universe and it helps you understand, you know, that that you have importance just like, you know, something really big or something really small. But at the same time, we're kind of all mixed up in this crazy thing together. Finally, I want to ask you about reporting on this beat because there's some beats where, OK, there if you're politics, you know, there's an election or there's a primary. Sometimes with science, as can be with other beats, but sometimes it's just like, boom, here's here's something new, a volcano or a study. And 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 I wonder how your life can revolve around that sort of uncertainty in reporting. Well, that's the that's the news business, I suppose. Right. You can plan your day and then you, you know, wake up in the morning and a big rock falls down over Siberia and like explodes and sets off car alarms and suddenly, you know, your whole carefully planned day is shifted and you're covering something else entirely. But, you know, sometimes like with the upcoming uh, total solar eclipse, you have like <laughs> potentially years of warning that some uh, natural event is going to happen. Like, you know, we know the eclipse is down to the, you know, second exactly when they're going to happen. But, you know, I think that it's a it's a real interesting mix of things I get to report on. Some of it is just sort of news and, and natural happenings. But you we also do a lot of features that look at the process of science and how scientists, um, you know, think about the world and how they investigate things and sort of how they approach problems. And I think that that can be really useful, too. It's not all just, you know, um, you know, weird science, but it's also something more subtle. It's a, it's about a human enterprise and, and a way of trying to understand things. And, you know, I feel super lucky that I've been given a chance to cover this beat. The name of the book is Transient and Strange. Now, thanks so much for taking a few minutes to talk about it. Oh, thank you. Thanks for having me on the show. Nell Greenfield Boyce covers science for NPR, and her first book, Transient and Strange, Notes on the Science of Life, is available today. We spoke last week over Zoom. And tomorrow on Ozarks at Large, how college degrees in science helped Ryan Rogers launch businesses based in fashion and ceramics. We'll talk to him about his brand's stately ceramics and well-stated clothing. And we'll also discuss how his participation in a Fayetteville Public Library program gave those brands an extra boost. That's on tomorrow's Ozarks at Large. A groundbreaking musician with deep Oklahoma roots is being remembered as a guitar hero who, along with his older sister, helped pioneer a punk rock ethos. Lawrence Collins was born in Tulsa in 1944, but it was in Southern California where his musical career really lifted off, thanks to the then-emerging medium of television. Lawrence Collins and his older sister Lori became sensations by appearing on the television program Town Hall Party as the Collins kids. Decked out in wild rhinestone suits, Lori and Larry brought rockabilly into living rooms. They also played the Grand Ole Opry and released records like Hoy Hoy. 
Well, I dreamed of heaven in the summer, baby, then. Ooh, I dreamed of heaven in the summer, baby, then. He had pretty white teeth and cold black curly hair. And their 1958 single, Whistlebait, is often recognized for embracing a punk rock ethos two decades before the Sex Pistols or Ramones grabbed headlines. She's a one for me, she's a witch of The duo became so popular, in fact, that they were asked to join Johnny Cash's national tour. Lawrence and Lori dissolved the Collins kids in the mid-1960s, but Lawrence Collins continued to work in the music business. He co-wrote the number one pop hit, Delta Dawn, and then channeled love for his home state for another number one hit. This one on the country charts, You're the Reason God Made Oklahoma. There's a full moon over Tulsa I hope that it's shining on you Nights are getting cold in Cherokee County. There's a blue northern passing through. I remember green eyes and a rancher's daughter, but remember is all that I do. Losing you left a pretty good cowboy with nothing to hold on to. Lawrence Collins died last week in California. He was 79. This is Ozarks at Large. I'm Matthew Moore. I'm sitting down with our resident outdoor enthusiast, Jack Travis, to share some more outdoor recommendations this time for the winter months. Hi, Jack. Hi, Matthew. Thanks again for having me. I'm really excited to talk about what you can do during winter because it can be a very difficult time for many people. The lack of sunlight and vitamin D throughout the colder months can cause winter depression or seasonal affective disorder. People are less motivated to go outside when the temperatures dip and miss out on the countless physical and emotional benefits of spending time outdoors. But it's almost ironic how people, including myself, feel less inclined to go outside during the winter months because it's one of the best times to get out there. A lot of conditions are peak for recreation during the cold seasons, plus outdoor spaces are far less crowded, so it's the perfect time to grab a jacket and try something new. Now, it's fascinating. I'm someone who often rides my bike to work, as you know, and it's certainly a lot harder to be motivated to get in some extra miles after work or before work 
through the cold season when you factor in all of the needed cold gear you're wearing and the potentially treacherous conditions of the bike trail. So what's your first recommendation for braving the cold? Well, I'm going to start our listeners off with an activity with a relatively low barrier to entry, trail running. Now, bear in mind that you can hike any trail that I'm about to mention if you'd rather keep a low tempo, but I'm a runner at heart, so I must do my duty to attract others to the sport. <laughs> yes, as someone who is not a runner, I'm happy to walk. So what's, what's first on your list here? So I recommend people take a trip to Lake Wilson. Fayetteville listeners will appreciate the lake's remote feeling despite its proximity to the metro area. Plus, Lake Wilson has some unique history, too. Did you know it was Fayetteville's first drinking water supply? No, and in fact, I often find myself having to remember that Lake Wilson and Wilson Park are different places. Different, yeah, entirely. Yes. City center versus out in the country. Yes, exactly. But according to uh, the city of Fayetteville, Lake Wilson water was drunk by Fayetteville residents until the 1960s when the Beaver Water District became the primary water source. Now the lake acts as a 320-acre park with two trails perfect for running or hiking. First, there's the shorter 1.33-mile Joe Clark Trail, which follows the perimeter of the lake. And then there's the longer Outer Loop Trail, which splits from the Joe Clark Trail to add an additional 0.33-mile segment. Both trails start from a small parking area and feature streams, rocky outcroppings, and beautiful views of the lake. You might even see some geese dabbling about in the water if the temperatures are warm enough. Okay, so how's the elevation gain on those trails? I know that hills can sneak up on you, especially in Fayetteville, on, uh, on you while you're doing trail running excursions. It is the Ozarks, but they're not too bad. Obviously, the longer trail is more challenging, but I still think either path will prove to be a great opportunity for beginners or a refreshing break for experienced runners. Now, my next suggestion will be an adequate challenge for anyone on their running or hiking journey. Okay, I'm, in, I'm intrigued. What's next here? We're going to take a trip over to Lincoln to visit the city's beautiful Lincoln Lake for the Lincoln Lake Loop Trail. This 4.4-mile trail is a treat for anyone who appreciates a dramatic landscape thoroughly populated by a variety of wildlife. You'll start in the parking lot, head back to the highway, and then cross a small iron bridge on your right. From there, the signs are easy to follow. You'll pass over magnificent limestone bluffs, through deep oak forests, and across a dam that provides excellent sightseeing. Be sure to wave at the anglers and boaters, which will undoubtedly dot the lake. Once over the dam, you'll see signs directing you to the Spillway Loop, Lake Loop, and Piney Loop. Just hang right to continue your hike around the lake. Did you mention the hike includes limestone cliffs? Tell me a little bit more about that. Yeah, I did. So Lincoln Lake is a multifaceted space with a lot going for it. There are caves around the park that are shallow enough to explore without harming the ecosystem or putting yourself in danger. And those limestone cliffs provide some of the best rock climbing in northwest Arkansas. It's a great place to pull on some rock outdoors, even if you've never climbed outside. So trail running and rock climbing, two great ways to soak in the sun and take advantage of chilly temperatures. Do you have anything else for us? Yes, I have two more stops, both with chances to see some awesome wildlife. Okay, you had me at wildlife. Where should listeners go to see some critters? The Boxley Valley area near Ponca along Highway 43 is one of the best spots in the state to see creatures like elk and bald eagles. The area has a rich cultural history as well, 
The first inhabitants were the native Osage tribe who utilized the landscape for hunting grounds as far back as the protohistoric period. Then the Cherokee occupied the area in the 1700s and Euro-American settlers began to farm the land around the 1830s. Along with its history and scenic beauty, the area is renowned for its Rocky Mountain elk herd that the Arkansas Game and Fish Commission introduced in 1981. The cool thing about these massive beasts is that they're used to the cold, so winter temperatures don't bother their feeding habits. The best place to view the elk is along Highway 43, there's a well-marked viewing area you can stop at, but you might need to slowly travel around the area while a passenger acts as a lookout. You can always stop at the Elk Information Center to learn more about the herd and where you're most likely to spot them. So many great outdoor spots that are practically in our backyard. So true. They're all spots short distances from the Northwest metro area, Winter is a time suited for self-reflection, and, in my opinion, nowhere is better for that than the outdoors. I appreciate you, Matthew, for sitting down with me to discuss outdoor recreation. Let's do this again. Say, springtime? I've got it on my calendar already. That's Jack Travis. Thanks, Jack. Thanks, Matthew. A pleasant, very cold Tuesday. This is... Ozarks at Large. Theater Squared is beginning a new year with a critically acclaimed production, What the Constitution Means to Me. Written by Heidi Schreck, the T2 version is directed by Amy Herzberg and opens January 24th. Theater Squared takes center stage on the latest episode of the I Am Northwest Arkansas podcast. Host Randy Wilburn invited T2's executive director, Shannon Jones, to the Furman Garden Performance Studio at KUAF just before the holidays for a conversation. Randy asked Shannon about productions at T2, but also about a part of Theater Squared that many people are not as familiar with, the outreach to children. So our schools tour program in particular, led by our amazing education team, reaches kids in Arkansas, Missouri, and Oklahoma. Um, We have um, support from some generous funders like the Tyson Family Foundation, Simmons Foods, that help support that school's tour as well as others. And that reach includes, we're usually hitting around 20,000 kids across those three states and hundreds of schools. And these are schools in areas that do not have regular access to the arts. Um, it is the first time a lot of these kids are being able to see a show and have that experience. Yeah. And As a kid who also did not necessarily grow up with theater, I can tell you what an incredible impact that is. And so with that school's tour in particular, we have an incredible reach. But also we just have we have amazing partnerships with the Amazium and we do our Miss Mouse show. We partner with all types of people across the region, as well as going into schools. And we also do performances for kids. So I think we've got three school matinees coming up for a Christmas carol. Like, so we're just going to like the impact to the kids is pretty incredible. Yeah. And you do like summer camps. You guys have a lot going on. Summer camps and educational classes all year round. We do musical theater classes, playwriting. There's something for everyone. Um, Even on spring break, we're getting those classes in there and sharing our love of theater with the world around us. Yeah, no, I and listen, I got to say, and for those of you that are listening, I had the benefit of firsthand experiencing the excellence of Theater Squared because both of my kids were in the play Matilda. And then one of my sons went through a training program 
with Theater Squared that was really, really valuable for him. He would come to Theater Squared every Monday night and then there were multiple meetings and he learned about the theater and about all kinds of different roles and and things that you can do within that. And so I just, I was really, uh, I've been very appreciative of the extent of the reach that Theater Squared has just beyond that beautiful facility that's just right down the street there on Spring Street. Can you just speak to that facility as well and kind of tell people what they could be in store for if they haven't been yet, if they do come, how many theaters do you have down there? We have two spaces inside of our theater. So we have our Spring Theater and our West Theater, but the entire building is meant to be activated. So we were supported by our community and so many amazing funders and people in the community to build this incredible new space, which opened in 2019. So we hit it. We got in there just before the pandemic hit, but it's been an incredible experience so far. The space holds our walker rehearsal hall, our community room, our commons bar and cafe, which is open even outside of showtime. So people can come in in the morning for coffee, you know, swing by and grab a pizza at lunch. So just incredible space that is always active. There's always something going on. And yeah, that's our beautiful. It's a really beautiful building. We've won a number of architecture awards. Um, we worked with Marvel Architects, Charcoal Blue Design Firm, a number of places that helped kind of make this dream a reality. And it's been incredible to be able to create work in this space meant and built for us. Yeah. I mean, the thing you just recently had a pop up bar there. And I mean, you guys have I mean, when you think of that whole building, it's almost like a utilitarian black box that can be utilized for so many different things. I've been there for early morning meetings. I've been there for board meetings. Your boardroom is outstanding and that's made available to the local public. They're just there's it's more than just the theater. It is one of the one of the important center pieces of the downtown Fayetteville area. That's very true. And that's part of the philosophy and ethos of why we created this space is not just to be a theater, but really to be a community space, to be a gathering space. That's why we have so many different programs and things that come that are able to come through there. And I think that's a really important part of how we keep the arts alive, how we remain relevant in our community. It's not just about putting on remarkable plays, which we do, but there's so much more that we can do for our community and that we want to do for our community. And, you know, certainly so much much of it is centered around the building, but that outreach and impact certainly extends um, when we're talking about just the reach of theater squared and the things that we want to be in our community. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, it's it's very special. That's for sure. And so I know that you are not from here. That's right? correct. Yes. So you're originally, are you originally from Florida? I'm originally from Florida. Okay. Okay. What part of Florida? I am from Jacksonville, so okay. Northeast okay. Florida. And I went to school in Central Florida in Orlando, home, okay. home of the mouse. Home of the, <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> so now you got your BFA in stage management from the University of Central Florida. What was that like? And you're also a member of the Actors' Equity Association. What was that like? How did you end up here in Northwest Arkansas? So I, after school, 
I started to freelance in the world of stage management. I worked mostly up and down the East Coast, so Maine, New Hampshire, Virginia, North Carolina, lots of uh, Alabama, lots of different states on the East Coast. And by happenstance, one of my mentors who I'd worked with also worked with our artistic director, Bob Ford. And one day he had reached out to her and said, hey, we're looking for stage managers. Do you know anyone? Yeah. And she recommended me. And I said, I'm not interested in going to Arkansas. <laughs> and, um, and I admittedly did not. I didn't give it a chance at first. But Bob, being the kind and generous soul that he is, just sat down. We just hopped on the phone one day and had probably the most incredible conversation I've ever had. And I just, I was completely blown away just by the possibility of Northwest Arkansas and Fayetteville. And I was like, okay, I have to go and see what this place is about. And I, what started, you know, so I, I got here in 2014 and what started as a contract basis, I was like, I'll be here for a few months and see if I like it. You know, if he, did he really sell me on it? You know? Yeah. And it started as kind of a a three show contract. I was going to be gone in a few months. And after, but we quickly got to the end of that three months. I was like, can I stay? Like, can we keep doing this? I love this place. And now almost 10 years later, here we are. Um, and it's been such an amazing journey. You know, so many people have been, I think, instrumental to me being able to make a home here with my family. Sure. And it's so incredible to be in a place where you're loved and supported and you get to have fun doing this work that you trained for. Yeah. And so, you know, that's how I ended up here. A little bit of hesitation on the front end, but I honestly couldn't imagine being anywhere else. Shannon Jones is the executive director of Theater Squared in Fayetteville. The full conversation with Randy Wilburn can be heard on the latest episode of I am Northwest Arkansas. And that podcast can be found at all major podcast platforms at IamNorthwestArkansas.com and at KUAF.com. The discussion was recorded inside the Furman Garner Performance Studio at the Carver Center for Public Radio. With so much news breaking every day, it's hard to keep up. But Morning Edition from NPR News has you covered with dispatches from abroad. NPR's Rob Schmitz is with us now from Berlin to tell us more. Good morning, Rob. And stories closer to home. President Biden heads to Minnesota today to point to his administration's investments in rural America. Let the Morning Edition team keep you informed. Join us every weekday. Morning Edition, tomorrow morning and every weekday morning from 5 until 9. Last week, we shared part of our conversation with the co-creators of the film We Have Just Begun, about the Elaine Massacre of 1919. The massacre occurred during what is referred to as Red Summer because of the bloodshed by African Americans killed in dozens of U.S. cities that year. The Elaine Massacre in Phillips County, Arkansas, resulted in the deaths of hundreds of black residents who were working toward organizing their labor. The movie will be screened at the Arkansas Museum of Fine Arts in Little Rock on Friday night. On our Friday show last week, we didn't have enough time to hear everything from the conversation, so here's just a bit more from a co-creator of the film, Michael Wilson. Fact is that the Delta could really be seen as um, a kind of 
region that needs to still be decolonized um you know to to really claim and and assert the fact that you know conditions down there were basically colonial the uh you know NAACP called it the American Congo at the time and if they're comparing it to the worst of colonial atrocities and the worst you know sort of colonizing that took place or some of the worst that took place in Africa um then we should wake up and realize that we've got work to do I mean this isn't a hundred year old story it's a story that begins way before that and um 1919 is an intensification of the uh violence against black people that was carried out under a you know kind of colonial mandate to develop the region and uh and profit off of um exploited labor when that labor wasn't needed anymore um the people were discarded and we have more and more discarded people in the world and more and more uh uh, chickens from, you know, colonization coming home to roost. And we have to deal with that. There's a, there's a responsibility, uh, to bring justice to that region to, in the short term, give them reparations to give them the same opportunity that, uh, you know, other regions have in terms of education, healthcare, um, uh, edible food, um, fresh food, you know, I mean, this place is surrounded with fertile farmland and you can't find fresh vegetables. The people have to, you know, sort of self-organize uh, farmers markets. So the, there's a, um, there's a systemic ongoing rape of the Delta that's taken place and it needs to stop. Not everyone will be able to be, at the screening on the 19th, will there be other opportunities for people to see the film? Yeah, uh, we've got um, we've got education. Uh, we've got an educational distributor who's going to be um, getting the, the film into, um, you know, libraries and schools and, and that sort of thing. But in the the shorter term we're hoping to uh land it on some sort of a streaming platform that um has the nerve to host us there's uh a kind of controversial part of the film among uh you know some interested parties and historians and that has to do with the claim in the film on the part of um descendants and others uh, that there was a lot of land stolen um, when the prevailing narrative is that they were just sharecroppers who didn't own land. And so they couldn't have lost any. Um, and I, I'd say that the first refutation of that is Ida B. Wells pamphlet where she documents just, you know, um, pages of possessions that people lost. Um, and then at the same time, sharecroppers, these categories were not neat. They, you know, a tenant farmer and a sharecropper could switch places in, in a matter of years. And a sharecropper might own some land. It might not be much, but they, um, in addition to working for the the planter, they might own some land of their own. And 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 that might have been seized. There's there are 
so many oral histories that indicate land was stolen during that time that it's really difficult to ignore. And I would say that in the same way that Brian Mitchell has discovered that um, there's hard evidence for the fact that uh, the shootout at Hoopsburg was initiated by the planners and not the people inside having a meeting, which really defies logic anyway. Um, and the oral histories pointed to that for years. Uh, then I would say at the same time, the, the oral histories are, I would say, correct about, you know, the land theft as well. And the ongoing land theft, you know, the ongoing um, advantage taken of, of people indebted, the ongoing advantage taken of people who were, um, you know, placed into compromising circumstances because of literacy, you know, th this sort of thing just continued and continued um, and continues up to this day. Michael Wilson is one of the co-creators of the film. We've just begun about the Elaine massacre in Phillips County, Arkansas, in 1919. You can hear much more from the interview with Wilson and Tongo Eisen Martin by searching OzarksAtLarge.com. The longer edition ran on our Friday show. The movie will be shown at the Arkansas Museum of Fine Arts in downtown Little Rock on Friday night as part of the Dreamland film series hosted by the Arkansas Cinema Society. Tickets for that screening are $15. Doors Friday night open at 5.30, and the show is scheduled to begin at 6. Much more about the event can be found at ArkansasCinemaSociety.org. This is Ozarks at Large, a production of 91.3 KUAF Fayetteville. Contributors today include Randy Wilburn and Jack Travis. It should be noted that Jack and I recorded our conversation before this single-digit weather, so do yourself a favor and keep those winter outdoor recommendations in the back of your mind and give them a whirl when it's safe to be outside. Kyle. We are going to be in the 40s uh, in the middle of this week, mm -hmm. but then we're down back to single digits, I think, for a couple of nights over the weekend. Check the weather app before you go oh outdoors. Oh, did you go outside at all yesterday? I did. did. I shoveled my I shoveled my driveway, and uh, I'm a Midwesterner, so yeah, that's a good point. It was not miserable, but it wasn't fun. Yeah, there you go. Matthew produced today's show in the Bruce and Ann Applegate News Studio Two. Join us tomorrow. Another brand new edition. No matter the weather of Ozarks at large. Until then, please be well, stay warm. Uh, I think I think we might. I think all of us might go above freezing tomorrow. I can't remember. I've I checked the forecast so many times and it's kind of ping-ponged mm -hmm. up and down, but be careful. Yes. Yep. Yep. Roads are still pretty slick yep. all across Arkansas, especially city streets, so be safe out there. I'm Matthew Moore. I'm Kyle Kellums. KUAF is supported by Butterfield Trail Village, a premier Northwest Arkansas retirement community catering to active lifestyles and resident well-being, offering a variety of amenities and living options, including apartments, cottages, and village homes. ButterfieldTrailVillage.org for more. Little Wing presents Old Crow Medicine Show coming to the City Auditorium in Eureka Springs with special guest Willie Watson, January 20th. Old Crow Medicine Show at the Auditorium in Eureka Springs. Tickets at tickets.thundertix.com.